Thank you for joining us as we bring you this worship service of 7th Avenue Presbyterian Church. Our readings are from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. The Reverend Paul Gaffney is preaching. His sermon is titled, Rebirthing the Story. You'll find the link to our complete announcements in your email, and when you take a look at those, you'll find an endorsement by Selena Sheck of Community Youth Center. This is one of the organizations we'll be supporting with our special Pentecost offering, which we are receiving through next Sunday, June 6th. And a reminder that if you're interested in donating, be sure to indicate Pentecost offering in the memo line. Here are two additional highlights. Today is the last Sunday of the month, and we'll be having a social hour via Zoom at 11 a.m. We hope you'll join us. And this Wednesday, the 2nd, we will have a simple service in the style of Taze with prayer chants in candlelight. We invite you to join us for that at 7.30 p.m. via Zoom. And now, in preparation for worship, you're invited to quiet yourself becoming still as you prepare to worship God.
Let us pray. O God, you are beyond our understanding and yet close to us as a parent. You have walked among us, teaching us. You are within us, loving us. Forgive those times we have failed to see your love outside us, within us, among us. We ask forgiveness when we separate ourselves from you and one another, as we now make our silent prayer. God's grace restores in us all that is broken. Christ's love opens us to new directions. The Spirit's power enables us to grasp wholeness and life in new ways. Through the mystery of God, the love of Christ, and the power of the Spirit, we are forgiven. Alleluia. Amen. from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, beginning with the first verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. God, we give you thanks for these ancient words. Open our hearts and minds that we may hear your word for us this day. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of God's robe filled the temple. Seraphs were attendants above God. Each had six wings and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the God of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of God's glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the sovereign, the God of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of Yahweh saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, beginning with the first verse. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. 
he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I have said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of humanity. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of humanity be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here ends the reading. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you once again, and I have to say that I am more hopeful than ever that I may yet have the opportunity to enter your church and stand with you and see you in the flesh. I pray for that occasion to come to pass as I pray for the health and wellness and happiness of each of you. It is Trinity Sunday, and I don't have a whole lot to say about the Trinity, actually, but I once heard a Christian comedian talk about the Trinity as a cherry pie cut in three pieces. How in a good cherry pie, the filling will flow freely between the cuts. And this always made some sense to me, this idea of oneness in the midst of parts. Well, just earlier this week, I was talking to a couple of clergy friends, and one of them said that his favorite explanation of the Trinity was that in order for God to become fully God, they had to exist in community. And this, for me, makes it much more clear that God needed community in God's self in order to be present to the inherent community in creation. I might even go one more step and drawing on feminist theologian Carter Hayward posit that God is community, or as she says it, God is our power in mutual relation. The Trinity is an example for us of mutuality all parts understood by the others as essential to the whole. I remember being a child in Sunday school and making a plaque out of popsicle sticks with John 3.16 written on the front in 
glued on alphabet pasta. It was the first Bible verse that I memorized, probably the first Bible verse that a lot of people memorized. When I was in high school, I remember attending a free concert held at the school, actually. My public high school had a very relaxed understanding of the separation between church and state. During the day, the performer offered an assembly for the school during which she talked with us about making good choices and saying no to drugs. That evening at the concert, she was much more explicit about her Christian messaging. Directly following her performance of Huey Lewis's hit single, Hip to be Square, she led the entire auditorium in an altar call. As a part of this invitation, she recited John 3:16, explaining that God loves us so much that he, God was always a he, sent Jesus to suffer and die for our sins. The performer then led us in a version of the sinner's prayer and invited people to come to the stage to offer their testimonies. I just wanted to leave. Even at 14 years old, I noticed myself resisting the interpretation of this scripture used in such a way. I felt myself resisting the prayer and became aware of my discomfort as people started testifying about the ways their lives had changed after accepting Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. These words, used so frequently and meant to be said in love, Jesus died for your sins. Accept Jesus into your heart. Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. I'm saved. Are you saved? If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. And maybe it is, but I've always struggled with this text. And reading it in its entirety and in the context of the whole of this book, I have mixed feelings about John's version of Jesus. Some preachers read text through a biblical, scholarly, exegetical lens. For me, as a clinical pastoral educator, I tend to be more interested in how the characters in the text are relating to each other. What are they doing and saying? How are they acting? In CPE, the verbatim is one of the foundational seminars of our educational process. A student brings a written account of a pastoral care encounter, which includes not only the written dialogue, but also the context of the encounter, the thoughts and feelings that arise in the body and mind of the caregiver, and the actions and behaviors of the one receiving care. Verbatims are perhaps my favorite aspect of the CPE process. They demonstrate the complex nature of relating to each other, human being to human being. When students present verbatims, I and their peers reflect with them on what happened in the encounter, what were they aware of, and even more difficult and often scary and sometimes painful, what were they unaware of? In clinical pastoral education, we study the living human documents of ourselves and the people whom we serve. We get curious about what might be going on in the subtext of the conversation, We look at the levels of an encounter, the content, the feelings, and the meaning, including possible metaphor and symbolism. We engage a number of questions together. We examine what happened before the encounter. 
What do the care provider and the care receiver bring with them into the conversation? What assessments did the person providing care make about the presenting need? What happened afterward? Was the person receiving care helped by the conversation? Were they harmed? Sometimes students get hung up on how much or how little the account that they have written actually represents the encounter itself. But in the way that I understand and utilize verbatims, it doesn't matter. What the author needs to learn shows up regardless of how accurate the dialogue is. A student could write an entirely contrived conversation and still learn from it, even if they believe that what they've written is a perfect encounter. This morning's gospel story doesn't appear in any other gospel account, and there is some speculation that John inserts his own voice into Jesus's words. So I imagine the author John bringing this passage to CPE as an example of a spiritual care encounter, and I imagine the kind of conversation that I might have with him. Prior to this meeting with Nicodemus, Jesus uh, has been baptized. He's called his disciples, he's turned water into wine, he's ransacked a farmer's market held in the temple, he prophesied his death and resurrection, and he performed other signs. Jesus is presented as a teacher, wise beyond his years, offering cryptic insights and mysterious phrases. His actions are viewed as rebellious and anti-establishment. It's entirely possible that Jesus knew who Nicodemus was. It was, after all, a fairly small community, and Jesus was quickly becoming the talk of the town. We don't know much about Nicodemus. Uh, he was a Pharisee, probably a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the high council. This was a very privileged position attained through extensive study, strict adherence to the religious law, and, of course, networking with other elites. He comes to Jesus at night, and here we can start to mine some meaning from the metaphor that John uses. The author is big on setting up opposites, dark and light, heaven and earth, flesh and spirit, death and life. And already I begin to wonder if he is able to appreciate the complexity of the gray areas that exist between these extremes. Why would Nicodemus come to see Jesus at night? What feelings might be present for him as he does so? The implication, given John's use of darkness as a metaphor for ignorance or evil, is that Nicodemus is sneaking around, not wanting to be seen by others. I can imagine some feelings that might accompany this kind of activity. Fear, anxiety, curiosity, intrigue, skepticism, hesitation, confusion— but in his first statement to Jesus, he calls him rabbi and offers what seems like praise. It's clear that God sent you and that God is with you because no one, no one could do these things that you're doing without God. Jesus' response is cryptic and hardly pastoral. He doesn't express an interest in why Nicodemus has come to visit, nor does he show any kind of curiosity about Nicodemus as a person? Ultimately, Jesus insults Nicodemus. Don't you understand? You call yourself a teacher. When I talk about tangible things, you don't believe me. How could you possibly grasp the intangible? One thing I invite my students to reflect on is the length of their responses. 
If the person receiving care speaks only three lines as Nicodemus does, then the person providing care speaks many, many more lines as Jesus does. There is a problem. And the problem is that the encounter appears one-sided, hierarchical, and imbalanced. Furthermore, Jesus seems annoyed, impatient, unwilling to meet Nicodemus in his humanness. He doesn't lean in or seek to better understand what the need is here. He just launches into a sermon, really, about how special he is and how much he has to offer, not just to Nicodemus, but to the whole world. And at this point, John might respond to my critique by saying that he has turned the power structure on its head. Probably Nicodemus has spoken to his congregants in similar ways, flaunting his knowledge and speaking over their heads, getting frustrated with their lack of understanding. John might remind me that Nicodemus had all of the power in this relationship. Not just the power to wake Jesus up in the middle of the night because he wanted to, but he had power over the lives of many, ultimately including Jesus' own life since he was a member of the high council responsible for Jesus' assassination. To expect Jesus to be kind to this man is a lot. It's a lot to expect of a marginalized person. And someone like Nicodemus, who has done harm to others, or at least knowingly been complicit in a system that does great harm, he ought to know that people take issue with his behavior. I might respond to John that lording wisdom or power over another person is not the way to balance power, even if that other person had it coming. And quite frankly, this kind of behavior is not congruent with the actual words that Jesus says. He speaks his theology but fails to enact it with the person who is right in front of him. I'd tell John that his portrayal of Jesus doesn't seem very caring or loving. He talks to people in unclear ways, and he gets upset when they don't understand him. He speaks in symbols and metaphor, and people take him literally. And then he gets frustrated, and then he makes it about himself. Jesus doesn't seem connected to his own humanity. He doesn't seem able to meet the humanity of the people with whom he interacts. So it's strange that later in chapter 13, Jesus says, love one another the way I have loved you. Because Jesus's way of loving throughout this text feels distant, at times condescending, but consistently seeming to point back at his own greatness and godliness. And his words which very often are some kind of explanation of who he is, appear more important than his actions. Is it any wonder that for so many generations, Christians have read these words literally and used them as a litmus test for belief and salvation? Is it any wonder that this account is used again and again to support an ideological and theological superiority for Christians who seek to make the gospel all about themselves? John may reply that Jesus' response is cryptic because he's frustrated with Nicodemus. And he's being expressive of his frustration, which is connected with his humanity. Nicodemus is the one who is not connecting. He's curious enough about Jesus to seek him out at night when no one else is around. But he's not curious enough to talk with him in front of anybody else where he might mistakenly be understood as associated with him. 
He's curious enough about the novelty and spectacle of what Jesus was doing, but certainly not curious enough to even imagine how he could actually let go of his earthly power enough to step into what Jesus is inviting him into. John might also tell me that Nicodemus offers Jesus an empty compliment, which is really just a statement of fact. And Jesus sees through his motivation, which is ultimately the preservation of his own power. So really, it's not Jesus's job to save Nicodemus. It isn't his work as an oppressed person to labor emotionally or spiritually on behalf of his oppressor. He was telling Nicodemus that he had to do the hard work of being reborn as something new, something imbued with spirit. And to do so, he had to give up his worldly power. At this point in our discourse, I might begin to understand where John is coming from in his writing of this account. I'd probably, surely, (laughs) remind him that Jesus doesn't seem pastoral. And John might tell me, perhaps quite passionately, that a pastoral response isn't what Jesus assesses is needed here. Nicodemus didn't need to be invited in for tea after stopping by unannounced because he could, due to the power and privilege he held in the community. He needed Jesus to tell him. He needed Jesus to tell him what he needed. And I might invite John to at least consider what a more pastoral response might look like, especially since his discourse to Nicodemus is all about becoming a new kind of person, born anew in the Spirit of God, which is ultimately communal in mutual relationship. And I would thank John for helping me to learn something about my own power and my own expectations of what care ought to be. My friends, this is our salvation that we have a new way to be with each other. It isn't that we have to say certain words or practice in certain ways in order to get saved. It's because we are already saved that we have to practice and listen, really listen to the words. This kingdom of God is not some far-off place. Just as John's Jesus speaks of bringing the light into the darkness. He speaks of bringing heaven to earth, infusing the flesh with spirit. Entering eternal life is not something in the future. It is what happens when we engage this way of being in the here and now. What if being born again isn't just one and done? What if it's a process that happens over and over and over again? Each time we let go of some idea of who we are and invite God to work with us in our lives, there is a rebirth. Each time we let go of some idea of who we are and invite God to work with us in our lives, there is a rebirth. Each time we turn toward each other in community and in mutuality, we enter into life eternal and co-create the kingdom with God and each other. And it goes on and on and on. And I'll let this be my charge to all of us as we re-enter the world. May we each live into the kingdom of God and the promise of life eternal in the here and now, rebirth after rebirth. Amen.
We believe in God, who in love created us. We believe in the Christ, who out of love bridged our world with God's very realm. We believe in the Holy Spirit, who is love, empowering us to live the resurrection, not just today, but every day. This we believe. Amen.
Let us pray. Holy Trinity, we give you thanks for the community of creation of which we are a part, for the relationships between plant and animal life, the health of our water and the climate. We pray your protection. Help us to use our curiosity and creativity to care for one another and for this planet we call home. You are the God of community, and so we pray that we would greet you in our relationships, in our awareness of our power, and in the vulnerability we feel when we've missed something, even as we study the living documents of our lives. Hold us in your loving arms as we practice over and over again to be the people you call us to be, people of justice, of love, of mutuality. Be in the stirrings of each of our hearts as we continue now in silent prayer. We make these prayers in the spirit of the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Lead me, Jesus. Lead me. 
As we go forth, we are invited to live into the kingdom of God and the promise of life eternal in the here and now. Amen. the grace of God, the peace of Christ, and the power of the Spirit be with those who work or watch or weep this day. May God tend the sick, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, and shield the joyous. Amen.